Welcome to this latest episode of the Chambridge Podcast, hosted by me, Callum Nicholson, and David Martin-Jones. Today, our guest is Joanna Williams. Joanna is an academic, author, columnist, and speaker focused on educational and cultural issues, and director of Keo, a think tank that aims to challenge fashionable forms of groupthink. Her most recent book is How Woke Won, the elitist movement that threatens democracy, tolerance, and reason, published in 2022. Today, she's with us to talk about her report on the Council of Europe, published last month entitled The Politicization of History Teaching in Europe, Exploiting the Past to Promote Contemporary Concerns. Welcome, Joanna. Hello, great to be with you. Thank you very much for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. So to begin, I just want to put a pretty, I suppose, maybe a challenging question to you, but I guess an, an opportunity to open up what we mean by history. And I see that your subtitle is Exploiting the Past to Promote Contemporary Concerns. But I suppose it's worth asking, was this ever not the case? Is not history always, in a sense, written by the winners? Is not history always written in with using the norms and the concerns of the present and imposing them on the past in some way? So in a sense, what's different uh, about how this is being uh, done now? And, and uh, what do you think is wrong with the approach that they're taking? What, what is wrong with history being written in the terms of the present? <laughs> no, well, that's a, a really great question. And um, I guess you are right, to some extent, this has always been the case. Um, I would argue that there's one huge difference between what we see today and what's gone on in the past in relation to history teaching, uh, particularly in relation to national identity. Uh, one of the reasons why I'm so interested in history is because I think it's a way of, of portraying a national story, if you like, a, a story about the nation. It's it's the origins of our national identity. Often it's how the story we tell ourselves as to how our nation came together and came to be where it's at today. And I think you're absolutely right to point out that there's always been tremendous scope for myth-making um, in that context. And you look at lots of the most famous events from English history, for example, and there's lots of uh, discussion really as to the extent to which there are myths or whether these events really did take place. And to some extent, it, it almost doesn't matter because it's in the retelling that they become part of our, our national cultural identity. But I think the role that history then played in the past in relation to the nation um, was two things. It, it was often um, um, about pride in the nation, about a, a story that, that would make people proud to belong to the particular uh, country that they were born in. Um, and I guess it, I would think within that pride, within that national story, it became something which was potentially unifying it wasn't uh, uh it, it was unifying in the sense that every it became the history of every member of that nation of every citizen and the idea of, of being a national citizen was bound up with buying into that history that you could be part of that national story and it didn't really matter about your racial background your gender identity uh, your sexual preferences, you could see yourself as being a member of a nation, as buying into that national history. Whereas I think nowadays um, the aim is often to make people ashamed of the past, to bring to the fore the, the sins of our ancestors. And in doing that, it becomes quite can become quite a divisive 
narrative. It's not a narrative that people feel proud to buy into, that people want to buy into. And it becomes a narrative which isn't associated with a, a, a unifying tendency to bind people together within the nation, but uh, an identitarian tendency to divide people on the lines of race, uh, race ethnicity, gender, sex, etc. So I think that that those are two big differences that I would see it, and, and both of which I think are are just just really unhelpful in terms of the the perception of history as promoting a national story. I suppose it's worth actually us pulling back for a second because if the argument now that you're making is that um, in an identitarian sense the curriculums are quite divisive now. Obviously, that can't have been the goal when the Council of Europe began to have views on curriculums in Europe uh, back after the Second World War. So maybe you just start. Maybe we should, we should start with a um, with just you outlining what were they trying to achieve at the time, and and uh, what what was the problem they were trying to solve? How did they think they'd solved it? And and as a consequence, how have things? How have they got away from that uh, goal now? Yeah, definitely. So the. Council of Europe, as you say, became interested in history teaching in the years immediately after the Second World War. And they were very concerned to root out what they perceived to be national bias. Um, many of their reports were, were along the theme of against bias and prejudice. And as part of that, it was looking at um, uh, nationalistic and uh, divisively nationalistic approaches to history, which in an effort to portray national pride, as I was talking about, would, I guess, portray other countries as being bad uh, and point to tensions and, and prejudice against other nation states. And in a bid to promote harmony, uh, you know, I, I don't think this is a bad thing at all, but in a bid to uh, promote harmony between nations after the Second World War, uh, they argued that what would be more uh, useful would be for uh, children to also learn the history of some other nations within Europe um, and within the, the wider world. I actually don't think there's anything remotely bad about that. I think that's a, a good objective. Um, I think I think national history should remain most important, but I think obviously no country exists on its own. You know, we, we do live in a broader world and sometimes we can only make sense of national history by looking at the relationship between uh, one nation and another. So, so I actually think the objectives at the beginning, uh, um, objective again is a, is a useful word that on, in terms of objectivity, they wanted uh, history to be more truthful, if you like, to uh, be less concerned with myth making and, and more concerned with some sense of objectivity, some sense of facts, of, of a, a, have a truthfulness about it. Um, but, but gradually over a 70 year period, I think the the Council of Europe has moved away from this agenda of, of a kind of neutral arbiter, if you like, of, of textbooks and, and national curricula. It started more and more moving away from national history as being more important than learning about the history of other countries uh, and started much more enforcing a view that that other countries, uh, the, the history of other countries should be taught as well. Um, and, and that the relationship of one country to another is not necessarily um, a story of 
uh, again, uh, from the point of view of the nation, but again, very much this emphasis, it seems, on, on the sins of colonialism, for example, the sins of slavery, the sins of empire. It's it's to do with the bad things, if you like, to be very, very simplistic about it, uh, that countries within um, Europe have the, the bad things they've done to countries in the rest of the world, which, which I say um, is embarrassingly simplistic. And I'm really sorry that's so simplistic. Um, but but that's that's kind of how it comes across, um, like I said, with an emphasis more on learning the history of other countries and the relationship uh, that the oppressor countries have to oppressed regimes and challenging, very, again, a very conscious effort to challenge the um, idea of, of one united national history, even within a country. Uh, by focusing much more on, on not just on, on other countries, but on, on different identity groups within the one nation. Mm. So I guess one thing uh, to bring us right up to date, one thing that really drove this home to me is the most recent report that um, the Council of Europe, I don't, they didn't write it, but they sponsored it on um, the Second World War, uh, which is looking at uh, gender, uh, queer identities, within the Second World War and queer relationships at the time of the Second World War. Um, again, you know, it's kind of an interesting thing for historians to look at, and I, I absolutely have no problem at all with historians exploring this. It does strike me as a, a slightly unusual topic that you would pick for children who are maybe going through school for the first time and learning about the history of the Second World War for the first time, when you think, there are different ways that you could approach this topic. You could look at battles, for example, you could look at military victories, you could look at um, the positions of different world leaders, um, Churchill, Stalin, Hitler being the most obvious people. You could look, take a biographical approach. Uh, you could look at war on the home front, look at the blitz in London, etc., and, and different attitudes towards this. So the idea that that out of all those different ways that you could approach this topic, they've chosen queer identities during the Second World War to focus on kind of, I think, is, is worth commenting on. It seems to be a peculiarly fashionable, a, a fashionable topic that they've landed upon. And it very much seems to me to play into the concerns of the present day uh, in terms of, of kind of what are academics most concerned about now uh, and that's what they're going to use to teach the second world war to children um rather than actually starting with the from the perspective of well what was objectively important and interesting uh, and vital really that that children should know about what happened during the second world war so the kind of you i think that's a useful kind of separate years of potted history of how the Council of Europe moved from this. We're going to do this just an overarching at a distance overview of textbooks used in schools to we're going to produce this guide on how to teach the Second World War from the perspective of queer identities. Joe, sure. yeah, I, I think that's, you know, very interesting in terms of, you know, the way in which the Council of Europe has uh, altered over a, a period of time. I'd like to go back to you know one of the the key distinctions you make, which is um, 
uh, in the evolution of this development of historical um, teaching in Europe. It starts with a mission that seems, you know, quite reasonable, really, to um, address, you know, what went wrong in the Second World War and how, you know, it's it's quite important to um, uh, restore a sense of Europeanness and a European civilizational understanding that, you know, went badly wrong around, you know, the 20th century, but still has a number of important values that we could learn from. But it seemed to me, and, and you could, you know, as a history teacher in the 1980s, it was always the uh, understanding that, you know, events happened and, and there were various interpretations of those events. So um, there were Marxist historians, for instance, who would, you know, produce very interesting work on, you know, history from below, it was called in the 1970s where you looked at, you know, the conditions of the working class or the conditions of the ordinary soldier and the kind of propaganda that might be used in 1914-18 to um, induce people to sign up. Um, so you could have a... Uh, it was always the idea that, you know, as a history teacher, you provided a range of viewpoints which, you know, you you could argue about. So... Um, there was a sense in which you didn't define the answer to a question of the causes of the Second World War, but you laid out various um, sort of information that the student would then uh, access and then modify or, you know, develop in their own way in a, in a history essay. But the, 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 what, what I found so striking in your report is this move from objectivity to prescription. So, in fact, what you seem to be saying, I think, is that it, it's, it's actually abandoned history. So in the early stages, you could still see in the Council of Europe a, uh, a concern with what history is and, and how we relate to the past. Instead, by about 2011-12, and certainly by the astonishing report you talk, to, talk, talk about in 2020 about quality history teaching, uh, it seems to have completely abandoned what I would have understood as a history teacher in, say, 1990 to be history, to become an entirely prescriptive occupation, bringing out certain behaviours in the past to reinforce the present. In fact, You've co completely lost a sense of the past and, and replaced it by an eternal presentism. And you talk a lot, a lot about presentism, I think. Uh, I mean, do you think that's the, 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 the core of what you're trying to put across in this report? Yeah, definitely. I think that's a really helpful summary. Um, thank you for that. It just just listening to you you say that though strikes me that there are a number of different things going on um, at, at the same time, as is always you know the case really whatever political event we might talk about. Um, I mean one one point which is is obviously kind of stating the obvious to some extent, but but and neither schools nor history teachers nor history teaching operates within a vacuum. Um, there's all kinds of social and cultural trends that are happening outside the school. 
um, that are influencing what goes on in the classroom as well and, and influencing what children learn about history. Uh, children don't just get their history from history teachers. Uh, they also get history, I guess, from museum visits and television programs and uh, fiction and nonfiction books. And it, it's a kind of um, cultural um, sea, if you like, that they're swimming in. Um, and history teaching is one small part of that. Mm -hmm. So I think if if just history teaching had changed and just history teaching was becoming more sceptical about the past altogether and more um, uh, distant from the past, then I think it would perhaps be less of a problem um, than what we've got now, which is history teaching taking place within the context of a broader culture that it seems to be intent on either knocking down statues or contextualizing statues or removing street names or kind of it seems sometimes like erasing every um every past uh, kind of representation to the past and and that i think very much puts children in this cultural present um situates them in this kind of presentism that then the history teaching at school simply doesn't challenge. And, and I think it, history teachers, it seems to me, would have been more difficult today because of this cultural presentism, but it's not impossible for them to challenge it. But, but because of the influences of, of organizations like the Council of Europe, they're less encouraged to challenge it and more uh, encouraged to reinforce the um, uh, cultural presentism, if you like. I, I, another thing that, that strikes me is, is not really in relation to history teaching specifically, but about, again, a, a cultural point and, and perhaps a point about education more broadly. Again, I think it's absolutely right what you were saying, uh, David, about um, history teaching in the past, perhaps being about, um, certainly with, with slightly older children, I would think, with, with kind of upper secondary, uh, A-level and certainly undergraduate students. Um, beginning to present them with this idea that there's not one interpretation, not one correct or objective interpretation on any um, historical question, but that there's uh, different ways of looking at particular uh, issues. And I think, uh, you know, in a way, separate from history, that's a very, very useful intellectual exercise, it seems to me, um, for uh, youngsters to engage in um it's it's important intellectually to learn that there are different ways of approaching a particular issues so that that one is not necessarily more right than another and that we can learn different things from from different sides and i think that intellectual um exercises is about making us adult you know it, it's about intellectual maturity and i think it it creates the possibility for dialogue between people who disagree Absolutely. i think one of the huge travesties about education moving away from that is that it has a broader cultural impact children are not learning those lessons uh in in being presented with one correct approach and one correct way of interpreting the past they're not being taken on that intellectual journey of learning how to um negotiate different interpretations and I, th I just think that's a terrible uh, we're, we're letting children down not just in terms of history but in terms of their broader education too yeah i think that's very you know the, I, I agree yeah I, I see what you're you're you know saying there and there's a passage in in your report where you say something like um the 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 um the aim of the the one of the I, I think one of the um, history 
a quality history teaching reports is about not um, educate, well, allowing uh, or encouraging children to know, but to be, to be a certain um, uh, character, you know, so that you actually are not looking at the past for the sake of the past. You're looking at, at it for prescriptive messages so that you are a certain character or an identity going forward. So it's all, almost a form of um, not education, but, um, well, to put it bluntly, sort of mind washing, really. Yeah, definitely. And I think even more so than, than um, expecting children to be a certain way. And again, this is completely antithetical to educational aims. There's an assumption that children will feel a certain way, yes. that children will have a particular emotional response to. I, I think, you know, in terms of that, you, you make a lot of the point about empathy, which I remember as a school teacher, you know, like in, in teaching um, GCSE history around the late 80s, um, empathy suddenly became part of the new curriculum. And, and we live with a lot of empathy now, you know, and, and I always thought at the time this is a bad move, but tell us more. No, definitely. I mean, it, it seems that one of the ways in which teachers are almost distancing themselves from history generally, um, but, but, but particularly the process that you were talking about in terms of, of presenting different forms of analysis uh, and actually properly, I would say, engaging in the subject matter of history, one of the ways in which they seem to get around that is by presenting history as a series of skills which children are expected to, to acquire. Now, again, you know, you could argue the case that there's always been some skills to do with history. I mean, a, a skill of, of essay writing, a skill of being able to um, assess material evidence from the past, uh, take this evidence to, to uh, kind of uh, interpret it, to arrive at conclusions. There have been academic and intellectual skills associated with history to, to teach children almost to think like a, a historian. And, and I think those skills are incredibly valid and very, very important to, to teach children. I think they're also very difficult. And, and I think certainly we remember from my own days at school, you know, history was considered to be one of the more difficult subjects mm. um, at the, the kind of higher levels of secondary school. I think in shying away from actually getting children to deal with academic rigor uh, on the one hand, but also to shy away from this idea that there are different interpretations of history to actually stand in front of a class of children nowadays and say uh, so I've just finished reading for example uh, Nigel Bigger's book on mm. on empire as as Nigel Bigger puts forward you know there are different arguments around empire he suggests that there's not one straightforward interpretation of of uh, colonialism to actually say that to a group of children nowadays, I think would be uh, hugely frowned upon. Yeah. You know, would be a rare, I think, would be the history teacher who would stand in front of a group of children and, and say, well, let's think, why did the British Empire do this? And was it all for bad motives? Yeah. I'd be really, really surprised if that happened. So instead of doing that, then uh, this emphasis on skills, but, but also interpreting empathy as a skill now I, I wouldn't see empathy as a skill you know I'd see empathy as an emotional state which 
you know, it's part of being human, Mm. but it's a peculiar part of being human, which you can't formally teach someone. You might try to encourage, if you like, as a parent or or as a, a human being, but to actually stand in front of a class and teach the skill of empathy, yes. I think is you're on very dodgy ground. And, and I guess my real fear behind this project is that it creates, we used to talk about political correctness. Mm. What it creates is a sense of emotional correctness, mm. that there's an emotionally correct response that you're supposed to have when thinking about things like slavery or colonialism. And, and this begins to take us into, you know, so far from, objectivity, facts, you know, where it, it almost becomes completely inappropriate to raise mm. counter narratives, to bring up awkward facts that that challenge that narrative, because in so doing, you're you're not demonstrating the emotional correctness that you're expected to to show. Interesting. Joanna, I've had a, a thought when you were talking about um, the imposition of these skills and so on, because in, in your in your report, at one point, you say that education has shifted subtly from teaching students to think critically to acquiring a set of behaviors, which I think is quite a striking mm -hmm. phrase. And when I read it, it made me think of Michel Foucault's work on discipline and punish, where he said there was a regime of knowledge in society that was also at the same time a regime of power. And so the, the office, the factory, the school, it was partly, it was not always even about the content of what you were learning. It was show up in school from nine until three, and you're learning to show up when the clock strikes, when the bell rings. And that discipline is one that's essential to an industrial society. So my question is, if we can see the acquiring of a set of behaviors, as you've outlined, as a regime of knowledge or a regime of discipline, what regime of power is it in service of? What is the image of society? And indeed, whose interest does it serve? Um, but what is the vision of society that is trying to be implemented? And, and according to who? No, well, these are, are very good questions and things I've thought about a lot. Um, I mean, I, I would be really loath to appear to be suggesting that there's some kind of of conspiracy behind this. Yeah, I'd really shy away from any suggestion, even to the extent of, of not wanting to suggest that this is worked out, you know, but there is an end goal. Um, I almost don't think there is. I think a lot of these reports and, and things emerge just as a reaction against something rather than a positive um, prescription of, of how the future should look. Um, but whenever I try and tell myself that, I always seem to be proved wrong. <laughs> and uh, there does seem to be some kind of, of more uh, worked out project, if you like, behind it, which, it, again, is not to suggest well, uh, perhaps I could good. rephrase that a little bit. Maybe not so much uh, uh, whose interest does it serve in, in a sense of identifiable individuals, but what sort of system. So, for instance, an example, uh, the way I've often thought about a lot of what people often term sort of the, the, the woke movements now, they seem to me to be fundamentally very neoliberal because it's turning everyone into an entrepreneur of their own identity. They're always seeking new markets for identity. Um, they're always uh, um, uh, sort of uh, conglomerating their identities for more leverage, just like corporations do. And indeed, if you look at a lot of the, 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 the discussion, a lot of the culture war phenomena, it's often setting people against each other who have both suffered at the hands of sort of neoliberal capitalism. So it could be the people voting for Trump uh, in what they call flyover country, which is uh, people who've often lost jobs to globalization. But the people who they dislike in the cities who are young, educated people, 
uh, often who have all of these, uh, who are doing degrees and so on and are learning a lot of these new ideologies, those people themselves are economically suffering too because they've got massive student debt, very little job security, they can't afford a house. So it seems to me in some ways, both the people, both sides of the culture war are actually suffering from the same phenomena. But instead of identifying a common pathology of which they're both symptoms, they look at each other and say, you're the disease and I'm the cure and vice versa. And so I, so for me, I see it as an illiberal phenomenon. And I'm wondering what what sort of, do you have an analysis around what you think it might be? No, I, I do, definitely. And um, I mean, I share lots of your concerns, but I, I don't think I would use the word neoliberal. And I'm not convinced that there's anything as straightforward as an economic link, as we might have seen in the past. Uh, and, you know, I particularly appreciate your example of, of kind of a discipline of getting children to turn up, a, jump at a bell ringing, for example, and how that might be useful if they were going to work in a factory kind of environment. Um, two things strike me specifically, again, to bring it back to um, uh, history teaching specifically. Uh, and again, to go back to what I was saying right at the very beginning uh, of the podcast about um, history being a national story, a story that, that binds together people in a, a, a nation, citizens of a nation. And I think, um, you know, to use a, a flippant example, something that's been in the news a lot in the UK over the past week has been, I'm sure people will have seen it, it it's been a story around the world uh, about Roald Dahl books being um, redrafted and re-edited. And, and I think for me, the reason why that was so um, upsetting and, I, and not just for me, I think for a lot of people as well, is because these books play a real intergenerational role. You know, I was read these books as a child. I've gone on and read these books to my own children. And, and in that way, the books provide a thread, a point of connection uh, through the language, the metaphors, the characters between kind of grandparent and grandchild. They serve to bind families mm. together. Um, and, and I think history plays that role as well, having some idea of a national story, particularly a national story that your parents would have heard, your neighbours would have heard, you know, other people in your community, I think serves to bind people together in a, a kind of cross-generational way and in a way that links people to a sense of national identity. And, and again, without wanting to appear to be conspiratorial about it, without wanting to suggest that there are people who sit down and kind of work out that they deliberately want to uh, attack this necessarily. I think it definitely works in the interests of some group of people, some groups of people in society to weaken those generational ties. Some people, I think, see these generational ties as being inherently problematic, that, that the family, for example, is not the, the site of, of love and the the book I'm currently reading, sorry, won't get that, is uh, Haven in a Heartless World by Christopher Lash, which is right. a study of the family. The subtitle is The Family Besieged. And, um, you know, I think, I think actually people, some people throughout recent history have seen the family not as, as this haven in a heartless world, but as a site of, of problematic values being spread. And if you can actually get in the middle of that and dislodge the influence of the family, dislodge the influence of the community, kind of put a wedge between people and the nation, it, it creates children as this kind of year zero style blank slate beings who are then more receptive to ideas 
from other people in society uh, and when they don't when we don't have that emotional bond to the nation state it allows more technocratic supranational institutions to um for, for loyalties to be directed there if you like instead of to to the nation i, I like the reference to uh lash um who was of course a historian and um his other concern was the minimal self and, and narcissism. And there's something um, quite narcissistic in this approach to history, do you think? I, I think there is, but I think, I think what that comes from, again, um, it's, it's difficult to tease out because there's so many different things mm. going on here. I think we've got much, much lower in it. I think this is linked a lot of... Uh, to, to Lasher's work on narcissism in the sense of a, a kind of therapeutic approach to yes. society. I think we have... It's, really it's also learned. kind of infantilising Exactly. As well. it, it really, really is. But I think we also have just incredibly low aspirations for children nowadays, low expectations. And I think in part that stems from a very therapeutic sense. Again, a bit like I was saying that when I was at school, you know, history was considered to be one of the more difficult subjects. Mm. And and there's an assumption nowadays that if you get children to do anything that's too challenging, you know, their, their poor little self-esteem <laughs> won't stand up to it. So we have to make everything kind of easy for them um, so that they're never confronted by what they don't know. Uh, and they all get gold stars and yes. uh, grade A's and, and everybody's happy. Mm. And I think one of the ways in which that plays out, I don't think teachers do always sit there and say, well, how can we make this easy? Although I think they do that sometimes. But but there's this kind of um, tyranny of relevance, I would mm. say, where there's an assumption that children couldn't possibly um, learn about, you know, what happened in... Um, Mongolia in 1634, for example, maybe nothing happened in Mongolia in 1634. But but the point I'm trying to make is that the past and foreign countries are considered to be so incredibly alien to to children that, that unless you can find something like oh queer history or you know mm. the history of children, they won't see this as at all relevant. You can't inspire them with the story itself. Um, so you have to bring it down to their level. You know, we have to find some way to make it, it relevant to them. And, and I think this is an incredibly patronising assumption. I think it first played out, and you might know, David, you know, from your own history teaching experiences, but I think go back to the 1980s, 1990s, there was a big emphasis on teaching children kind of community history, local history, right. which again, you know, don't have a problem with. It's interesting to know something about the history of your community. Yeah. But the argument for that was that this would be relevant. Right. You know, children wouldn't want children living in Middlesbrough, for example, couldn't possibly learn the history of London. Mm. You know, so and about events that happened down south. So you you've got to teach them the history of Middlesbrough, which is is fine. But when it's only the history of Middlesbrough, when it's only what happened to people who look like you, it it becomes very very limiting. And I think some of that is is um, underpinned by this very, very um, low aspirations and low kind of assumptions that we have of children. It's interesting. I saw uh, Frank Peretti give a talk recently, and he pointed to me I'd never considered before, and it seems true, which was that he said, until a few a couple of decades ago, um, 
education was informed by theology and philosophy, but now it's purely informed by psychology and this sort of therapeutic view of children, which I thought was a very striking um, point. Um, but in the context of that, we were talking earlier about um, the presentism, and mm. uh, and also you mentioned uh, uh, sort of Marxist theories of history mm. and so on. And it made me think that reading your report, um, I know that in the 1950s there was a book released or a report called Against Bias and Prejudice. And so the idea that the European, uh, the Council of Europe had was to try and have curriculums that were against bias and prejudice, which I think we can all agree is a, is a very noble cause. Um, but it does seem to me these days that what we're seeing are uh, acceptable forms of prejudice coming back into things. Um, so people now who state personal discomfort with prevailing norms, but they're not imposing them on others. So you know, people like J.K. Rowling or even Kate Forbes, we've just seen in Scotland, who was not saying, I'm denying anyone from living in a particular way, just saying this is not what I believe. But it's interesting how there's now a very clear bias against and prejudice against the intolerance of people simply stating a diversity of views. And, um, and, I, and I really wonder, as a consequence, if, if you look at, uh, well, we talked about Marxist history and, and re representing class interests, but it seems to me that a lot of the ideas of tolerance we have now are very much the image of a particular form of middle class educated elites in positions of institutional authority. So I do wonder, are we really seeing here, is everything we're seeing, is it basically just the middle class gentrification of our collective memory of the past? Uh, so not just presentism, but sort of middle classism, because so many of these social justice movements seem to be the preoccupations of, of the middle classes, uh, it seems to me anyway. And if you look at the political left, it used to represent class interests, but now it does seem to have been gentrified by middle class people with middle class concerns. And indeed, the quickest people these days to probably be cancelled for being politically incorrect is someone from Whitehaven in the north of England, um, uh, because the, the, the forms of language, they don't have the forms of language that are typical now in uh, a humanities degree um, at a, a very sort of middle class university. So do we, is there an element of sort of middle class affectation at play here? I think I think there is. I think there's an awful lot in what you say. Um, but I think the way it plays out is very crafty. I don't think middle class, I think middle class people are putting their own interests to the fore. But I think unlike, say, you know, if, the, if you take a, uh, imagine a typical scene of, say, coal miners going on strike in the 1980s, those coal miners were fighting for their own interests. And there was absolutely no pretense whatsoever that they were doing anything other than fighting for their own interests. They wanted a pay rise. They were on the picket lines. And, and there was a very clear class conflict between um, the, the, the kind of government in London or the mine owners who were refusing to give them the pay rise and the interests of the white working class men who they were mainly on the picket line demanding um, an increase in pain, demanding their own interests. What you don't see nowadays is kind of middle class history teachers uh, kind of with placards outside school saying, we demand to teach the curriculum as we see it. <laughs> um, we want middle class interests represented on the curriculum. I mean, such a thing. Well, would I, be I suppose, I, I suppose uh, uh, what I meant, though, was, was less middle class interests so much as middle class uh, fashions. Uh, it does seem to me if you look at the middle classes and if you look particularly at what happened in 2020 with the social justice protests, uh, there was a lot of people working in, uh, you know, typically often white people working in sort of middle class professions who were very much online. I have friends in the publishing industry and a lot of that in the publishing Twitter was very active around a lot of these issues. 
And there was a lot of um, people virtue signaling around uh, solidarity with um, various, you know, oppressed groups and so on. And there's nothing wrong with that, of course. But the point is that they, uh, well, a friend of mine pointed out that these people are people who themselves are economically no longer really middle class. They still have jobs that have the status of sort of middle class uh, uh, progress, but it's but they're no longer able to afford houses and so on. They're very poorly paid jobs. And she said they would never protest for their own rights, but they're protesting for other people's. And in a sense, it's something that allows them to feel they still have middle class status if they are able to help other people in that way, even if it's just um, uh, symbolically. Um, so I suppose there's, there's a, uh, the question is less about middle class interests, but the fashions that perhaps sort of reflect the fact that the middle classes are, have in fact been quite hollowed out. And one of the few things they have left is at least they can signal their virtue around certain issues that implies that they're in a position to help someone when they perhaps are not. So it's, it's, a, it's a question more about less interest, more about fashions, I suppose. I'm, I'm not convinced I would actually draw such a sharp distinction between fashions and interests in that way, uh, although I do think that, that both are important and I think it's the interplay, the relationship between the two that, that's really interesting to explore here and tease out. Um, so on the kind of fashionable causes, then yes, I, I absolutely 100% agree with you. You know, I think this is definitely what's going on here, what you're seeing throughout kind of culture more broadly, if you go to a museum or an art gallery, sit down to watch the BBC of an evening, uh, pick up a newspaper. Um, we're seeing uh, middle-class fashionable causes being pushed down our throats, I would argue, in a way, uh, particularly, like I said, if you look at the output of the BBC, I think particularly in a way that, that's uh, very patronising, uh, very belittling when it comes into assumptions about what, what working class people might like to see or want to see. Again, a very degraded sense, but but these, these fashionable causes, but they're based um, not around class and class interests, but, but again, as you were saying, overtly on the on, on the way that they present themselves, they are presented around these very identitarian, fashionable interests. So again, whether this is around sexuality, uh, gender identity, and how gender identity is, is something that we're supposed to now see as being very fluid, uh, something that we must respect in terms of asking people their pronouns, um, ethnic, ethnicity, um, or racial identity, all these different kind of uh, different identity groups, uh, I think is, is, is kind of, that's the fashionable cause, one of the main fashionable causes, if you like, that's being promoted to us. But I, I think that promoting this actually is uh, very, very much in the interest of white middle-class people and often their financial interest, because uh, to, to, uh, kind of draw upon an old Marxist trope, if you like, there is a, a kind of divide and rule element about this. If you say that people can't be left to forge relationships one with another without um, an equality, diversity and inclusivity officer micromanaging that relationship. And I mean, micromanaging quite literally, you know, telling us, oh, you know, you mustn't ask someone where they come from. You must ask someone their pronouns. Now it's become fashionable, I've noticed in publishing, for people to even put how you pronounce their name um, on the bottom of their email signatures. And these kind of everyday interactions that we would have 10 years ago just completely taken for granted, 
Mm. Uh, we're now being told uh, how we should relate to each other. So uh, my former university, the University of Kent, is in the Times newspaper today because they've written, somebody at the university has, has produced a policy document saying that everybody should refer to everybody else by gender neutral pronouns until they re receive reassurance um, <laughs> from another the, the person they're interacting with as to which specific pronouns they use. And the justification for this, again, reported in the Times today, is that um, it's not socially acceptable to be going around now um, constantly asking people or, or using gender neutral pronouns. But, but you, we need to kind of do this as an artificial exercise to make it normal to um, ask people what their pronouns are. Now, to me, this is, is exactly what you're talking about. It's a fashionable middle-class cause. You know, when I go to the pub tonight, you know, it's not the way normal people carry on. We don't go around talking to each other in gender-neutral terms. This is a, a very fashionable middle-class cause that's being thrust upon everybody else in society. It's, I think, not really got anything to do with gender non-binary people. It becomes a kind of pledge of allegiance yeah. to woke values. Mm -hmm. It becomes a measure of the extent to which you are prepared to go along uh, with these fashionable middle class concerns and pledge your kind of commitment to this EDI code that they are trying to enforce. But I think it's also more than that. And I think it very much does serve the interest of this whole cater of people we've got now in society the professional managerial class call them mm. whatever you like but there's um a huge growing number of people whose jobs are actually financially tied up in promoting mm. this agenda and these are often some of the most well-paid jobs in society mm. so the welcome trust in london for example ditched its medicine man collection i uh, was in the news kind of two three months ago now and yet is paying £216,000 a year to an equality and diversity officer that they're currently in the process of recruiting. Wow. You know, look in our universities and there's layers of people whose jobs are actually tied up in promoting this woke nonsense, which is not something that the rest of society buys into. So I, I think it's, it's, what I'm trying to say to answer your question is I'm saying it's both. Yes, it's fashionable causes, but it also does serve their interests as well. What is very quick uh, thought from what you said about, what you mentioned about the um, the HR departments advising mm -hmm. the employees and, and uh, mediating the relationships. I suppose this is actually my point about the neoliberal thing, because it used to be, there's a strange idea people have now that HR is on the side of the employees, but HR is there in order to govern the employees for the corporation. And it's quite interesting now that they uh, are creating new ways for people to fear each other and being reported. Because if you then have a fearful um, uh, set of employees, then they're going to be more docile, which they're going to be more easy to manage. Mm -hmm. And so it seems to be a very neoliberal phenomenon of this, uh, uh, this sort of panopticon that we're all living in now. Where we're all looking at each other and 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 checking our language and so on. Um, but David, I, you... I think that's absolutely right. But whereas HR department 
problems in the past were often concerned with, again, comes back to what you were saying earlier, mm. you know, you'd, you'd come up for a disciplinary offence, perhaps, or you'd be called in for a meeting with the HR department if you were turning up late, um, if it was a perception that you weren't doing your job properly, if you were slacking off early, you know, if you were turning up smelly and dirty, <laughs> I mean, to give examples. And now it seems as if it's gone far beyond that. And, and they're actually getting to the heart of what do you actually think? You know, perhaps I'm romanticizing the past, but in, in a, a typical factory job 30, 40 years ago, you know, if you turned up on time, did your job properly and didn't leave before the end of the day, you would have very little reason to have contact with an HR manager. Now, not only would you be expected to turn up, do the work and, and stay the duration, but display your pronouns, you know, share affiliation, pledge allegiance to the pride flag. Um, and, and what they want is not just your your labour, your time, but they want your heart and your soul as well. Yes, I think that's very good. And uh, we've seen a massive proliferation of HR, haven't we? You know, I mean, from being a rather, you know, minor part of an institution, they now seem to be running the show in, you know, quite a significant way. So um, this development of HR it seems to be um, uh, a phenomenon that goes along with this techno-managerialism that you were talking about, which is the sort of the, the um, uh, structure, if you like, the economic structure of, of techno-managerialism requires the, the, um, this kind of woke uh, presentation in the world. And it, it sort of took off in the public sector, it seemed to me, but has now transferred itself to a phenomenon of woke capitalism too. Which, but uh, we, you know, one of the, the the arguments might be that once it gets into um, major corporations, um, they begin to fail. Um, I mean, maybe that's where it ends. I don't know. I would like to think so. I'm not completely convinced no. it will happen on its own, but I think there is. Um, well, I think I think these things always seem to have a reality check. So one again, new story I caught just before uh, coming to speak to you both today is that uh, I don't know if you'll have heard this yet, but the um, I think it's it's uh, Puffin books Puffin, have yes. agreed yeah. to now yes. republish the original versions of Roald Dahl books. So clearly somebody somewhere had this brilliant idea, mm. a stupid idea that, that what was really needed for Eldar's books was a sensitivity reader, that all these changes were needed to be made. What they assumed, I think, was that they could do this completely under the radar. Nobody would notice. Clearly, it has come to the public attention. And there's been it was well, been raging for a week now, mm. a week long backlash with even um, Queen Camilla uh, making a statement yesterday. You know, the, the there seems to be a real popular backlash against this. Mm. And there must be at some level a very, very basic profit motive that has made this publishing company realize that if we don't get the originals back yes. out, we're perhaps going to lose money on this. So I, I really hope you're right there. But, you know, just to kind of bring all of this full circle a little bit to, to what we've been talking about in relation to history and, and particularly your question about, about what is driving this and what, what's the end point of all of this. And, 
the the point I was making about almost like the creation of a year zero of of creating a blank slate of of disconnecting people from generational bonds and from national bonds, you know, it certainly makes the way if you if you don't have that intrinsic sense of 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 values that you've picked up from your childhood, from your family, from your grandparents, uh, of the values that you would associate with being a member of your nation, it makes it a damn sight easier for these ETI officers to come in and say, actually, the way we behave in this company is we all ask each other our pronouns before we start conversations with each other, which, as I say, is a completely artificial exercise. Absolutely nobody in the real world behaves like that. But, but if you arrive at a company or at, at school as a, as a blank slate, disconnected, alienated from your nation, from your family, from tradition, from culture, then you're much more likely yeah. to be receptive to these kind of bonkers new ways of, of relating to each other. And I think that really enhances the power that these people have. And, and I'm com convinced that they do know that. Yeah, and no, I think that's... Um very um accurate i think when you go going back to the report uh it seems to me that uh two words do a lot of heavy lifting in this um attempt to re remake the selves of uh you know our postmodern uh condition really uh one is critical you know to be critical is is central now Critical seems to be a bit of a weasel word now. It used to be something that was, um, you know, open to criticism. But now critical is to be critical only of um, Western values, Western culture, um, European ideas, but not to be critical of an understanding of social justice, for instance. It could also, I always think something now when people talk about critical mm. theory, critical in the sense mm. almost like really important, you must pay attention to it. Mm. Yeah. So, so the, the critical, and, and the, in terms of that critical position, which is not really critical at all, is the idea that central to being critical is to be aware of the other and the othering dimension. So, those two words seem to do a huge amount of heavy lifting in the um, the vocabulary of the Council of Europe. I, I wonder what you'd uh, think about that. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. The points you're making about criticality not being very critical. It often seems to me that the word we can substitute criticality with is conformity. Everybody mm. is critical in exactly the same way as everybody else is critical. And, and critical often means um, accepting that view, accepting what you're told about being um, critical uh, uh, and kind of regurgitating the view you're expected to to um, get in line with. But again, the other um, point I think to make on that is how, particularly in relation to teaching, but I think often in, in other walks of life as well, these um, ideas that are kind of disguised and hidden. And, and again, I, I increasingly um, becoming less naive about the extent to which this is is conscious um, that people are deliberately hiding these ideas so if you take critical race theory for example um, as soon as you start saying as a parent that you object to schools uh, teaching critical race theory the 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 retaliation always comes back 
oh, don't you realize that critical race theory was an academic legal theory taught to university students in America in the 1970s and 1980s? You know, of course, we're not teaching seven and eight year olds um, academic legal theory. Um, why on earth would we do that? And there's this attempt to completely disown and disclaim any such thing. Um, and with, with this kind of complete denial that this is what anyone's doing. But of course, at the same time as they're denying that, what they are doing is teaching ideas which are completely influenced by critical theory and emerged from critical theory, uh, critical race theory. So yeah, nobody may be standing in front of, of a class full of, of six-year-olds and saying, right, boys and girls, you know, take out your critical legal books. You know, today we're going to learn all about critical race theory. I'm, I'm quite happy to admit that nobody is doing that, but that doesn't mean to say that they are learning um, to see people and judge people on the basis of their skin color, to divide society up in that way, to uh, take on board ideas like white privilege and um, uh, ideas around oppression and, and ideas around othering. You know, that vocabulary might not be being used, but those are very much the ideas that children are being taught. One final question, Joe, is, is um, I mean, for obvious reasons, I think, since the Second World War, nationalism has been quite a bad word in Europe. Uh, but something you also talk about in the uh, report is is that the in, in adopting a, a distinct sort of European dimension since 1953, there are some perversities that have come out of this and perhaps implied is there's maybe more room for a an understanding of the nation's place in our history and indeed history's place in the nation. Um, and I'm wondering, to, to, what do you see this being? What, what do you see the future of education? Uh, what do you see the place of, of nationalism in the education could be? What do you see the solution to some of the current uh, oddities we see in the educational system? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a very, very interesting question. I mean, I I think obviously nationalism um, has become such a, an incredibly dirty word that, that it would be very, very difficult to and. and you know, I, I would not want to lead the way on, on arguing for explicitly nationalistic history. Um, I do think it's useful for uh, children to know history of other countries as well and, and to know the interaction, the relationship between one country and another. I actually think it would be very difficult to teach um, children history in a national vacuum, you know, to, to exclusively teach the history of one country. Um, but uh, I think what I guess I think is a shame in, in ditching a kind of nationalistic approach to history. You know, like we've, we've gone so far as to suggest that any sense of, of national pride, I think is, is uh, we're being told is wrong, is bad for children to have any sense of national pride. And I think where that strikes me as being most apparent is in the um, attitude towards heroes. Um, figures from the past who would have once been considered, I'm on about people like Captain Cook, Francis Drake, mm -hmm. people who would have been considered admirable figures for young people to look up to, to be inspired by. And, and again, it would become a source of regional pride. So I'm from Middlesbrough. Captain Cook was from Middlesbrough. 
you know, we didn't have a lot growing up in Middlesbrough in the 1980s, but we had the Captain Cook Birthplace Museum, you know, and it's a, it was a really important, he became a really important source of, of, of regional pride and national pride. I actually think we, it's a really sad thing to take that away from children. Um, it leaves them without figures to aspire towards, to, to look up to. And I think to come right back to what I was saying at the beginning, I think this is actually where some of the myth-making is not all that bad, particularly for younger children, because it does create a sense of, of adventure, excitement, aspiration. Uh, and and I, I actually don't think pride in and of itself is always a bad thing. Joanna Williams, thank you very much. Thank you. It's been a really interesting discussion. Thank you for having me.